0: The more deeply you are in relationship with someone, the more you are guaranteed to hurt them at some point because there is no way for two humans to like rub their lives up against each other without there being some kind of problems because we're all just too different from each other. We all have our own stuff and it's going to happen. You're going to hurt each other.
1: On this episode of the Multi Amory podcast, we're discussing what not to do in a non monogamous relationship. And joining us for this is Dr. Liz Powell. They're the author of Building Open Relationships, also a sex educator and a licensed psychologist working in queer, kinky, and non monogamous relationships. Also, Dr. Liz is going to be hosting a six week webinar with our friend Kevin Patterson in April called Unfuck Your Polyamory, which uh, we'll kind of get into a little bit during this, and then Liz can tell us more about that at the end. So, welcome, Dr. Liz.
0: Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. yeah. Thank so you. We're your so, your book came you're out here. a
3: little while ago, right? When was it? Was it earlier last year?
0: Yeah, it was July of last oh, okay, year. Okay, got believe.
2: it yeah congrats maybe the year before <laughs> I can't remember it was, it was
0: it was right at the start of July one of right. those years
2: <laughs> either 2018 or 19 cool
0: I think it was 18, actually, now that I okay. think about it. And it's wild to think that my book has oh, been out for a year and a half. It's still not all, <laughs> yeah, all the way yeah. real.
3: Yeah, I mean, yeah definitely. Can, I, I mean, I'm still at the point where like, I can't even remember the full title of my book still. And it's it's been something like, in my life for like five years, you know? <laughs>
2: what is what is the full title? I don't know. I really, uh, I really embarrassed myself that, in an interview blah, the other blah, blah, day blah. when I tried
3: to say the full title of my book and then just petered out halfway through <laughs> the subtitle. I was like, oh, dear. Uh, polyamory for yeah people. but speaking of cool. which so to give you the full <laughs> title dr liz's book is called building open relationships your hands-on guide to swinging polyamory and beyond uh so how long has this book been in the making for you
0: uh so it was a very fast book honestly um i started it like actually really started working on it in november of 2017 and had it out at the start of July in 2018. Um, in part because I did uh, National Novel Writing Month uh, in November of that it. year, so I knocked out like 50,000 oh of the words wow. in one month, wow.
1: <laughs> which wow. is great.
0: Uh, I, I have ADHD, so I only do things in fits <laughs> and spurts, like regular sustained progress is not the way my brain works. Uh, so bulk of the book was written in November of 2017, and then the rest of it was written in a fit of panic the month before I had to have (laughs) it out to people uh, who had pre-purchased it through Indiegogo. So that's... That's
2: amazing. (laughs) That's very
3: motivating to get you to finish a project.
0: I mean, it's a big part of why I did the Indiegogo campaign is I knew that if people were expecting something from me by a particular date, it would motivate me enough to actually finish it. Because otherwise, like if I'm the only one holding me to a deadline, I'm never (laughs) going to do it. There's just so many other things that I can be doing. And I'm so bad at getting myself to do the things like that's why we have three of
2: us on this podcast. So totally understandable. Force each other
1: to do things. Uh
0: Uh-huh. So
3: today, uh, for this episode, specifically, we're looking at a very particular section in Dr. Liz's book, uh, simply titled, Don't Do These Things. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Dr. Liz, you know, you lay out a number of behaviors. Well, l- let me just pose it to you. What inspired this particular section for you?
0: I mean, overall, my book was intended to be something that people can utilize in really practical ways. Uh, it's not a book that needs to be read cover to cover. It's not a book where if you don't read an earlier section, you're going to be lost later on. I wanted it to be something very specifically where folks can pick and choose and grab the parts that are going to be most helpful for them. And with any project, there's always a number of things that don't quite fit other places. Mm -hmm. And I found that a lot of those for this book fell into that category of like, how can you not be a dick about this? Like, how can you not be a jerk when you're in these relationships with other people? Uh, And so that's kind of how it started as like a joking section title in my my writing program and then was (laughs) fabulous. So I kept it. It's great. Cool. Yeah,
3: and here we are. So we're just going to go section by section and talk about each of these things and, you know, would want to give a reminder to our listeners, this is far from a comprehensive list of the ways that one can be a jerk. <laughs> in are
1: so many more ways to be a jerk. So,
0: there's so many so ways to be a jerk. Really, a so cornucopia. So many things, not to, so do many in a things not to do. Um,
3: yes. So if there's a particular behavior that we've missed, you don't have to angry tweet at us, or unless so we, you can. can. I mean, you can. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean if, by all <laughs> means, go for it. So we're going to start out. The very first section that you put in there is titled "Don't be a douchebag." Can you just really quickly sum up for us and our listeners what you mean by that?
0: I think that, unfortunately, most of us don't learn how to be good citizens in terms of the ways that we interact with others. So that's... Not learning good emotional uh, intelligence skills. That's uh, not learning what to do when what we want doesn't align with what someone wants to give us. It's not learning how to set our boundaries. It's not learning how to ask for what we actually want to need. Like it's a lot of the ways that we fall into problematic, passive aggressive, negative patterns with other people. Mm. And I think there's also a lot of ways that people end up acting out in relationships, either because of their own stuff or because of their fears or other things that happen for them. And it can be really tempting for folks who have that tendency to end up going into multiple relationships because they may feel like then there are going to be less people actually paying attention, right? If they can just spread their jerkness mm, right. <laughs> thinly enough, no one will notice the thin layer of jerkness uh, rather uh, than in one relationship, one person holding all of the jerkness, right? So it's wow. like it's
3: like a toast that you spread, a very wide piece of toast that you spread your jerkness across like some really crappy butter.
0: Right, like the worst, like most terrible imitation butter <laughs> spread <laughs> that has, like, real butter flavorin, but, like, with the apostrophe ex- flavor flavorin, like, that's kind of what it is, yeah.
2: <laughs> flavorin. I love that.
1: <laughs> wow. Okay, so, so this section, it reminded me of something that we end up talking about a fair amount on this show, and someone actually asked me about this recently. They're like, why do you always mention this? But basically, we'll do an episode where we'll talk about some topic, and maybe we'll give some techniques or some tools that people can use. And then at the end... We feel this need to be like, hey, and like, don't weaponize this. Like,
2: I feel like yes. that's Dedeker's favorite thing <laughs> <Yeah>. to say. <laughs> don't mm-hmm. weaponize this shit. And it's yeah. it's that
1: thing of like, there isn't this sort of foolproof. If you do this thing, you're never a jerk. Kind of a thing. Or if you, you know, if you don't do this thing, you're no. never a jerk. It's like you could take something really constructive, like nonviolent communication. And use it to be oh, manipulative yeah. and abusive and a jerk. So this this section kind of reminded me a bit of that. And it's it's hard to pin it down for people, but it's just that like... It is. It, it almost makes it worse when you're like, I'm doing the right thing. And here I am being a jerk <laughs> by doing it.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think that a lot of where I see this happening of people taking these things that could otherwise be healthy and weaponizing them, it's this... people almost get into like this rules lawyering Mm. of like, well, I use I statements to tell you that I feel like Mm. you're an asshole. (laughs) Right. Right. Rather that there's this, like I followed the rules. Therefore what I did can't be wrong. Uh, and I think that, like, on a larger scale, a lot of our communities are still reckoning with, like, how do we understand which behaviors are acceptable? How do we under- understand how to help people correct behaviors that are problematic? And, like, the more that we try to be explicit about every single thing that someone can do, the, e- the more loopholes people yeah. try to find. And so I feel like most of this section just boils down to, like worry less about details and more about the spirit of a thing. And are you actually acting from a place of kindness and compassion or are you looking for ways to like be okay being Nark. a jerk? Yeah.
3: Cause you, you specifically zero in on, and I know I've seen this kind of come up in conversation a lot recently in communities. Um, Cause you zero in specifically on the behavior of like taking responsibility for your own feelings. And that's a great concept and, <laughs> and it's something that we all should do, but then you really zero in on then weaponizing it to then, Yeah, like essentially telling other people to be responsible for their own feelings so that you don't have to be responsible for anything. You know, which is, it's so tricky, you know, it's the same, like, you know, I think on our Mm -hmm. show, so many people have reached out to us, have, you know, talking about specifically we did an episode about like owning your own shit and taking responsibility for your feelings and people were so blown away by it and loved it and really moved by it. And then at the same time, we can also see how many ways it's so easy to abuse that and make it so that you can just absolve yourself of any responsibility for anybody's feelings around you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, And for me, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I saw, so I saw a lot of this when I was first moving into Namanaga communities in a more significant way in a lot of folks who in the early days were drawn to the label of relationship anarchy, Mm -hmm. that like a lot of those folks, and everybody's nodding because we all know, like (laughs) a lot of those folks, especially in the early days, were what I call relationship Mm -hmm. libertarians. Your stuff is your problem. Don't bother me with it. Like, you be over there. Your feelings are your responsibility. And I think that... You know, American culture, especially like strongly American capitalistic culture, has this idea of individuality and that there's such a thing as like an independently made person or someone who is independent of reliance on others or who did something entirely on their own. And that's a myth. It's a fabrication. There are none of us who are not interconnected. The world that we live in is intimately interconnected. And to imagine that any one of us could do a thing or say a thing to someone we care about and have it not have an impact for for which we are at all responsible. Like that is such a dismissive and uh, it's such a problematic way to think about how disposable other people are to you, right? That if anyone has a negative reaction to you, it must necessarily be about them. It can't possibly be about you. Um, and I think too, that there is an element to this of a lot of us don't know how to sit with having hurt someone. Yeah. yeah. And most of us, because we live in a country that has a carceral approach to justice and harm, think that bad people do bad things. So if I'm admitting that I did something that hurt you, that makes me a bad person and therefore I might get excluded forever. Right. It's this very binaristic extremes approach to recognizing and dealing with harm, where instead, if we could just acknowledge the harm that we uh, enact on others at all different levels, which we all do all of the time. Um, we would be able to address it in more effective and upfront ways rather than it being a game of like, how do I defend myself and keep away from responsibility for as long as possible? It's, um, you know, if you're familiar with Hinduism and the way that karma is actually meant to, to be a thing in Hinduism, karma is the fruition of action. It's the principle that everything that you do has a consequence of some sort, right? That might be good. That might be bad. It might be neutral or otherwise, but there is no action without fruition. And that's what I think of here. What you're doing might not have been wrong and your partner might still be hurt. Those two things are not in conflict with each other. And if I care about someone and I want them in my life, from my position, it's worthwhile to invest some caring in letting them see that I still care about them even when what we want is at odds.
2: Something uh, that marissa alexa mccool said to us a couple of weeks ago when we had her on the show was that if you feel defensive if you feel yourself getting defensive that's the first the first thing you should do is stop and listen and think as opposed to just automatically going and saying something which is kind of what i'm hearing you say as well yeah uh, and yeah that's good advice I thought, and you can her.
0: always take a breath you can always sure. take a pause or a timeout, like So many of these conversations, we feel a pressure to resolve it immediately. And that's not real. If you're noticing that you're feeling really defensive and you need some space to process what's happening before you can come back to it, take that space. That is so much better than plowing through a conversation that's not going well. Um, You know, I'm... I'm a therapist and a coach and a lot of couples come to me and they have that firm belief that like, you should never go to bed angry. So you have to stay up and solve it. And that is the hugest cause of ridiculous fights that never end well. If you can just agree to take a pause, let your bodies calm down, let your nervous system reset, you're going to have a much better time of getting through that conversation. I've had had a lot
3: of sleepless nights because of that belief
1: Mm, of not going to bed angry.
3: Yeah, staying up until like four
2: in
1: the and morning yeah and just you, you end up collapsing angry instead <laughs> of going to bed angry yeah.
0: because you
3: can't help it
0: or for me it was collapsing into tears i was always mm-hmm. i would just like get i would get so tired and exhausted right. i would just cry yeah, <laughs> <And>
3: yeah. just <laughs> totally
2: so you talk about uh the state of the union addresses with your partners which mm-hmm. is kind of fun just because we talk about radar on this show, which is, again, also sort of a regularly scheduled meeting. But I was wondering what your state of the union, your idea of a state of a union looks like. Is it with multiple partners at once? Is it one on one? Like, what does that look like to you in this context?
0: For me, it really depends on what my relationships look like at that time. Um, Most of how I do relationships these days is independent relationships. So like they might be dating each other, but I don't do a lot of like interconnected triads or quads or anything like that. So when I do state of the unions, usually it's at a dyadic level. So it's me and the person I'm dating. Um, I try to do some kind of check in every month, even if it's just a fairly casual like, hey, any stuff that you haven't brought up that might be helpful for us to talk about any stuff I haven't brought up. Um, on a quarterly basis, I find it helpful to set up a system quarterly or every six months where, like, you are explicitly encouraged to bring up at least three things that you're having an issue with. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Army, we would call this kind of a system a three up, three down. So what are three things we did really well? What are three things we need to work on? Um And part of why I moved toward that system is I had a relationship where we had monthly check-ins and still would neither bring up the things that were actually causing problems for us because one person would be like, oh, it's great. Yeah, it's great for me too. Things are fantastic. Cool, let's (laughs) move on. Yeah. Right? (laughs)
2: Instead of actually finding something, being like, no, we need need to have those three things. Okay. Yeah.
0: And I think that that also helps you identify problems earlier rather than waiting until they're like huge potential relationship-ending problems. If you know that... Every few months, you have to bring up some things that are bugging you. It's gonna help you attune to what those things might be so that you're not like. I know I have a habit of like convincing myself that I'm not upset by things that are upsetting mm. me because I shouldn't be, because I should be perfect, Polly, because I'm a leader in the community and I'm Dr. Yeah. Liz and I should be fine with everything and it should right. be okay, right? <laughs> and, wait, you mean like, you're not uh, fine uh, with everything?
3: I mean I am.
0: Everything's pretty I don't know what say, you're you talking
3: about. So clearly <laughs> I say I'm
0: fine me, like every other word. Um, it's awful. It upsets me deeply on a regular basis that I have wants and needs like <laughs> a regular person. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. But here we are, right? Yeah. And so you know, for me, knowing that I have to come up with things to talk about makes it easier. Mm, yeah, especially like for folks who We're socialized in families or given, especially socialization as women in this culture, bringing up problems is a thing that is strongly discouraged. And so making a space where it is explicit and expected makes it way simpler for everybody.
1: And is that for I'm just curious for your system of like the three up, three down, is that each person has a three up, three down or like together we come up with three up, three down? We each do.
0: No, you have to come up with them okay, those separately. okay, cool, yeah. Yeah, because what I've found uh, is that when folks try to collaborate on what they think the problem is, it is very rarely right. what actually mm. is the problem.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm. <laughs> um, you know, there's this thing, those of us who work with couples see all the time where the couple comes in and says, this is our problem, and yeah. that is never <laughs> actually
2: the problem. <laughs> right?
0: The, the Iranian yogurt <laughs> is not the problem 90% of the mm-hmm. time. So if you just have to have that separate space because what i'm identifying as a problem might be something that you think is going really well mm. and if we're trying to collaborate collaboratively come up with these things uh, it's it's unlikely that we're going to actually be real and honest about
1: right. it uh, okay I, I love this this is a good i think this is a good kind of foundation for all of these right so with all of this it's just like don't be a jerk it's a good you don't know, be a yeah. and, and and kind of Accept the fact that it's possible to hurt people. And that doesn't mean you're a bad person, right? That that accepting that is yeah, actually what makes us a good not, person.
0: Not that it's possible. You are guaranteed <laughs> to hurt people. The more deeply you are in relationship with someone, the more you are guaranteed to hurt them at some point. Because there is no way for two humans to, like, rub their lives up against each other without there being some kind of problems. Because we're all just too different from each other. We all have our own stuff. And it's going to happen. You're going to hurt each other.
1: All right. So the next one from this section of your book is about cowboying slash cowgirling slash cowpersoning. And uh, this is something we've talked about on this show, but it's been a while. So So could you give us like a quick definition of what cowpersoning is?
0: Sure. So a cowperson is someone who is monogamous but they want to find someone to date and they think probably the hot, sexy people are doing the non-monogamy, so they're just going to go into the non-monogamy community and date one of them and steal them away back to monogamy land.
1: Got it. So
0: They're going to rope themselves right, a cow.
1: Right, and it's, yeah, like the <laughs> the cowboy analogy comes right from this, like, oh, the non-monogamous people are like these wild horses out here <laughs> that you're going to go lasso yeah. and then...
0: I'm going to Exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> like that song by the Rolling yeah. Stones.
1: I mean, I, yes. I, I love the idea of, like, being a wild horse as a polyamorous person. Yeah, this person. could get so, kind of kinky I mean, if we
0: lean into it, but... Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of Warsan Shire's poem For Women Who Are Difficult mm. to Love, where, like, the first line is, like, you are a horse mm. running alone, mm. right? And, like, absolutely mm. love the image of being a wild horse, but I do not fucking want <laughs> to be broken. Right. Thank you very yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: okay, so something that... With this one, I feel like when you describe it like that on the surface, it's like, oh, yeah, that's shitty. But I think where this one gets really complicated is in the subtleties of it, of, yeah, you know, it's, it's one thing to be like a very intentional cowboy, which is, I know I'm monogamous, I know I want to go in and break me a polyamorous filly and make them be monogamous, right? In my experience, though, most people don't go into it quite so clearly like that it's more yeah. like huh I'm interested in this person or maybe I've met some people who are non-monogamous like maybe I'll give that a try but n- never quite committing all the way to like no I'm really gonna do this sort of still with in the back of your mind this yeah. hope of like well but if it's real right or if
0: they'll right, want to be monogamous yeah, yeah. and then yeah. it becomes mm-hmm. yeah. I
1: think actually much more more harmful in a way because it's then it's so tied up in like well if you're not being monogamous with me then that's because you don't really love me or that's because Mm -hmm. you know something's wrong with you or like all the things that we've heard before
0: yeah absolutely and I do think that that is more commonly how it happens that it's with folks who you know they're kind of fine with like dating multiple people but like Of course, if it was serious, they would want monogamy or like, I mean, if it was like, like, yeah, polyamory, sure. But like, are we going to be like polyamorous and like married or like have kids like that Uh seems silly. So if you want those things, then clearly you're going to want to be monogamous with me. And I think there's probably also some folks for whom an element of this is that they really do want to be polyamory people and they aren't. Hmm. You know, I think that some folks are naturally really well-suited to non-monogamy. Some folks are really well-suited naturally to monogamy, and a whole bunch of folks are somewhere in the middle and could kind of maybe go either way, depending on circumstances. But the reality is we live in a monogamous culture. We live in a world that is mononormative and monocentric, and moving against that river is hard, and you have to be committed to do it, because otherwise it's just much easier to go with the Mm -hmm. flow. Mm -hmm. And I think that this this same kind of underlying belief set is similar to underlying, like, strict hierarchies. It's similar to what's underlying people who want to have this very exclusive romantic connection. But, like, you can do other things with your body, but that's not meaningful. What's meaningful is what we have, and we're going to protect that at all costs. Which comes from, you know, the scarcity that we're all taught. We're taught that you get one love right? You get one person who is your one, who is the one forever, and you need to protect them at all costs and everyone else is trying to steal them. And I think that that is really hard to unprogram. Even if you've been acting in non-monogamous ways for a long time, it's a lot of societal training that goes into that. And I think that it's hard to know sometimes when it's still there and still acting in you.
3: Yeah, Mm. definitely. I kind of want to approach this topic a little bit on the other side of things, because, you know, there's many people that I know who read about cow personing or experience it, you know, like have a bad experience with it. Mm -hmm. And then they feel compelled to kind of swing the other way and be like, well, I'm only going to seek partners who already identify as non-monogamous or polyamorous or who are already partnered or whatever. And sometimes that works out really well for people. And sometimes I see it lead to a lot of frustration with a smaller dating pool or yeah. a dating pool where there's just so much crossover because everyone knows each other or things like that. And so, you know, all the time, yes. especially <laughs> when I have clients, if they've just been burned by some kind of cow person-ing situation, so many times they ask like, should I just like refuse to date anyone who doesn't already identify as polyamorous? And so I'm wondering your take on that. You know, what advice do you want to give to people who are maybe considering maybe it's okay to date outside of the non-monogamous community, or maybe I should avoid that at all costs? Like, what's your take on that?
0: That is such a personal like, risk and effort hmm. equation, right? So for me, because it is literally my job to teach people how to do non-monogamy well, I don't tend to date people who are new to non-monogamy because it starts to feel like work <laughs> really quickly. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and makes I don't want to work with the people I'm fucking. You know, first of all, it's not particularly ethical. Secondly, maybe I'd rather have the money. <laughs> I don't know. But for me, it's hard yeah. to date people who are new to non-monogamy because while dating someone who is working really hard at it makes it easier for them in some ways, it also means my expectation set is much higher. Like I, because it is literally my job to hold people's emotions and do emotional labor. The kinds of things that I am willing to walk partners through are more limited in some ways than other people might be, because it, it it can start to feel like I'm on the job. I think some folks who have been non-monogamous for a long time are really great at dating new to non-monogamy people. I think that if you are someone who knows you want to be non-monogamous, And you're going to date people who are uncertain about non-monogamy or newer to it. It's important for you to be really good at your boundaries and to know where your boundaries are, how you're going to set them and how you're going to enforce them. And I think it's also important to do a lot of very upfront communication. And if you start to feel like something is off, to just call it out. Um, I think a lot of folks... Uh, When they're getting mixed signals from someone where the person is saying, like, no, of course, I want you to date other people. I just have had emotional meltdowns before your last five dates because my life has been really hard lately. Mm. Right. They want to hear their intent to change. They want to appreciate that a person could change. They want to hold space for someone becoming who they want them to be. But they aren't listening to the actual behaviors that are happening. So I think you have to consider, like, what are the risks of doing this? Where are my boundaries? How do I know when it's time to pull out of this? How do I know when it's worth continuing to invest effort? And that's mm-hmm. going to be a different answer for every person and a, even for each person at different points in their life, depending upon how well-resourced they are. Yeah.
3: I feel like to add to that list, yeah. it, it seems very important to also have a self-awareness of like how you personally respond to NRE. You know, because I know I can sit and think back of like, especially situations that I've been in where I feel like someone was kind of trying to cow person me or whatever and thinking about like, ooh, I know because I was like in this hot state of all this chemical cocktails flying around in my brain, I was way worse at having boundaries or way worse at sticking up for my values and things like that. I feel like that's definitely a factor, you know, of just having that experience and having that awareness.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you're in NRE, you are by definition high. Mm. Your brain is flooded with all sorts of chemicals that are not there during regular waking state consciousness. So you want to be very careful of how you do decisions. (laughs) Um, You know, for me, I have a therapist. I see her every week. And if I'm starting to be in NRE with someone, I talk with her about it basically every week that I see her just to get an external Mm. check on what's happening. Uh, Because I know... Like, as someone who uh, has ADHD and is therefore somewhat impulsive and has a lot of, like, excitement and energy when things are new, that it's helpful for me to have external checks. I also have friends who I can talk to who will give me checks and, like, point out if I'm doing stupid stuff. And I know that for me, like when I'm in NRE, I want to like get married and have (laughs) babies and move in together. And as soon as like the six month mark hits, I probably don't want any of those things. So I just don't talk about them. I let myself experience that beautiful fantasy life and then like let it move (laughs) on (laughs) because that's not, I'm not going to be happy with that. Um, And yeah, I think, you know, most of us are relatively inexperienced in setting good boundaries because very few people are raised by parents who encourage them to set good boundaries. And most of how we learn to interact with people is what we learn from our families. So practicing for yourself with your friends, with your coworkers, with the people around you, setting good boundaries, paying attention to like in your body, what feels like a yes, what feels like a no, how do you know when someone is already over your boundary? Like that kind of work Pays off even in NRE because I know when I look back that even during NRE I saw the things that were not working for me. I just decided not to mm. listen.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely move
0: into that. All
2: right, so let's move on to the next one: harem collecting. Can <laughs> you explain what this is? And yeah, we had we had some questions about this one, so please.
0: Yeah, so I think most of us who have been in non for a while have seen that there are, usually in every community, a couple of generally straight cisgender men who have a variety of very attractive, usually much younger women partners who are not allowed to date anyone else. Mm. <laughs> they, this, this person gets to date multiple people. A lot of times it's also in kink context that, like, he is the sir and they are all his slaves and they... Uh, must do his bidding, right? Where there's this uh, imbalance in the relationship where one person gets to be non-monogamous and do whatever they want with whomever they want. uh, And the other people are expected to be faithful. Um, And I think, you know, again, the most common way I see this is with that very particular cis hetero kind of gender imbalanced thing that is clearly reflective of patriarchy and the way that patriarchy teaches us like who gets to have sexual agency and whose sexual desires and needs matter. Um, But I've seen it a variety of different ways as well, where there are in some communities, again, especially in kink contexts, femdoms who have multiple male slaves who are not allowed to do anything with anyone else uh, and who send them lots of money. and, And where the ethical, like how ethical that situation actually is for those involved is uncertain. Um, in general, if what you're trying to do is collect as many pretty people as possible in your life, that is not necessarily a problem, but it is more likely to become a problem because all of us have necessarily limited time and energy. And if what you're trying to do is collect people, it is questionable how much of their humanity you can engage with. And I think that objectification can be really hot when it's like mutually negotiated and agreed upon, but otherwise is not a great idea. Um, I see a lot of folks, especially folks newer to non-monogamy, who are like, oh, my God, all these hot people. I want all of them. I want to date 12 people and they're all the hottest people in the community. And like we've been there. (laughs) (laughs) That way lies madness. There is, You just can't.
2: That yeah, totally makes sense. I I feel like I see this more in one penis policy type situations. Oh, yeah. I mean, totally. maybe one vagina policy, but not not as often. But would you still kind of classify that as harem collecting in a way? And and why do you think that, especially newly non monogamous people tend to go this route, especially the one penis policy route? Is it just yeah. insecurity and?
0: Well, I mean, I think one penis policy can be harem collecting, but might not. It depends on how okay they are with the not penis haver having actual relationships yeah. other than the penis haver, right? Harem collecting, as I'm talking about it, is like a very clear one person is non-monogamous. Other people are perhaps in name non-monogamous, but not actually given the freedom and autonomy to be non-monogamous. Um, one penis policies are like, real strictly about patriarchy, right? There's a a story that patriarchy teaches us that men are sexual subjects and women are sexual objects. uh, And non-binary folks like me don't exist. So um, people who are having sex with a penis, because again, only cisgender people exist, uh, that sex is more real because they are subjects. They are actual actors. They are making decisions. They are the people creating a thing. Whereas people who are cisgender women are receivers. They are objects. They are recipients. They are passive in this in this form. So sex between two women doesn't count because like, yeah, it's fun times that they're doing, but that's not like real. Like, how can they have sex? There's no penis. The penis is what makes the sex, Um, which, you know, is related to the way that like all of the way we talk about sex tends to be very penetration focused. Mm. When people say I had sex with someone 90% 90% of the time, they're meaning a penis went inside a vagina, even though sex can include so many other kinds of things. Uh-huh. Um, but penile penetration is how we define sex. And so when we have things like one penis policies, when we have things like harem collecting, it's a lot about preventing people with vaginas from having sex with other people because... Penises are dirty. Like they'll have someone's cum in them when they come home. And that's the bad kind of dirty for some reason, or like it'll spread disease or whatever. And I think this also relates to the way that a lot of our culture teaches men that their primary value in sexuality is mm-hmm. their penis.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. That it's their penis that makes the sex good. It's their penis that makes the sex bad. It's their penis that defines who they are as a sexual being, um, which is so mm-hmm. harmful So harmful to people with penises. Completely incorrect. Completely (laughs) incorrect. And if you think about it. like hand-fucking is the jam. (laughs) But also if you think about it. Why don't more people hand-fuck
1: more? (laughs) Like in most mainstream (laughs) pornography,
3: which is what most, uh, you know, most cisgender heterosexual men are are consuming for pornography. um, You know, the man in the pornographic scene usually is just a penis. Like, he's usually cut off at the shoulders. Yes. Yeah. You don't
1: see his head or anything. You don't see him no. his head. You don't yeah. see on a leg. Like, they Yeah. Just... And
3: so it's like you are, yeah, it's like so reinforced that, like, that is your job in this situation.
1: Yeah. And I, and I, I like, I, yeah. I worry we're going to go too far off on this tangent, but it's, this stuff is so interesting because I've also found in men that I've worked with that this. Um, kind of over reliance on your penis like that's the only thing that makes you good as a sexual partner or maybe not the only thing but it's the most important thing I have found quite often leads leads men then to make less responsible decisions about their sexual health and even be coercive Mm -hmm. end up being coercive toward their female partners about not using condoms for example Because it comes from this, well, I know that I perform better without it, and that's the only thing that makes me valuable as a sexual partner, so that's worth doing. And it's kind of this weird, like, you end up doing more harm than good because, as a man, you've been so internalized with this idea that, like, that's the only way that you're... A viable partner sexually yeah yeah
0: well and there are so many things that can lead to issues with erections you know Mm -hmm. Uh, like if you go to a sex party most people with penises at their first dozen sex parties have a lot of trouble with erections sometimes even longer you know or uh folks with various different health conditions it can affect erections a lot of people uh if there's something going on with their brain or if they're feeling uncomfortable erections don't happen for them uh, people who've had prostate issues, like there's so many things that can change whether a physical erection can happen, and reliance on the penis as the sex thing guarantees trouble. Uh, what we find actually with erectile dysfunction is one of the main things that leads to problems with erections is fear you're going to have a problem with your <laughs> erection because it becomes this self reinforcing cycle of like, oh shit, am I going to be able to get an erection? Oh god, it's not working. Oh god, come on, please. Oh Jesus, right where it's just. Everything gets in the way of that being able to happen. Yeah,
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we have more that we want to get to. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break to talk about some ways you can support this show. If you like what you're hearing and if you like what's going on here, please help us keep this going and to keep this show growing by taking a moment to listen to our ads and check out our sponsors.
3: To get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code MULTI.
1: All right, so let's continue on here with this list. So the next one that we have here is unicorn hunting. So this is something Mm. that we've, it comes up a lot on the show, I almost feel like doesn't need explanation, but we're going to give a quick one anyway. Uh, Dr. Liz, you want to give us the quick explanation of what that means?
0: Sure. Unicorn hunting is when an established couple that was previously monogamous wants to find a third to complete their relationship. Almost always, it is a hetero couple who is looking for a hot by babe uh, who will fulfill all of their dreams, love them both equally, want to have sex with both of them equally, wants to make them first in their entire life and date no one else, but understand that the other pe- couple's relationship always comes first. And
1: disappear mm-hmm. if family comes to visit.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course. You're just a roommate or a nanny, right? right? You also have to be available for childcare usually. Right. Usually, Ooh. that's also one of the conditions.
1: Boy, oh, boy. Okay, so, so yeah, so wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Lot to unpack there. <laughs> this one's so interesting because I feel like unicorn hunting, at least within established polyamorous communities, is. It's all it's like a a byword. It's like a a joke. It's this like, oh, yeah, unicorn hunting. Am I right? Like, yeah, that's that's rough. That's awful. But then there also tends to be this like argument that then comes up about what counts as unicorn hunting is any couple with a third. Unicorn hunting is unicorn hunting a term for that in general, or is it only a pejorative term for people doing it badly? it's just such a, like, I feel like there ends up actually being a lot of debate, even if we all want to agree. Oh yeah. Unicorn hunting.
3: And I also start to see a lot of debate of like, well, that over there is unicorn hunting. What I'm doing is not unicorn hunting. (laughs) You know, there's there's quite a bit of that.
0: The thing that I would say is for me, it's unicorn hunting if there is a power imbalance inherent in how the relationship is structured and intended to continue. Mm. Right. So if it is a couple has come up with a spot in their relationship that a person must fill and that person just has to slot themselves in, it's unicorn hunting, Mm. right? If it is, there are two people who are in a relationship who would like to both have relationships with the same person and they're open to building independent and interesting relationships between all three of them, that I would say is not necessarily unicorn hunting, (laughs) For me, it's about power and balance and objectification, right? Are you looking for a sex toy who happens to be breathing uh, and can take care of your children? Or are you acknowledging that this independent person is going to have their own wants and needs, their own desires, their own way of doing things, and you have space for that in the way that you're creating this new relationship? So I'm going to
1: play the part of the unicorn hunting couple now.
0: Apologist. Sure. The,
1: the, the apologist, yeah. And I'm going to say like, <laughs> but we're going to treat them really well like that's not going to be a problem like we're going to take care of them they're going to yeah. be taken care of so it's not they don't have to worry about it
2: T- taken care of in what <laughs> way
0: well and like i don't think anyone goes into unicorn hunting saying to themselves what we want to do is find someone to take advantage of and who we're not going to treat as a equal person yeah. right that is not how it's internally framed However, intent is not magic. Just because you don't intend to create a power imbalance, just because you don't intend to harm someone in the way you do things, does not mean that that won't be the impact that is happening. I think that the reason unicorn hunting happens is it is the closest thing to monogamy. So it is the safest choice. Mm. If you are really, really worried about something messing up your existing relationship... It seems much safer to just do everything together and find someone who is going to refuse to rock your boat. Right. But that safety is an illusion. It doesn't exist. There is no guarantee that anything you do that changes your relationship as significantly as moving from monogamy to any version of non-monogamy, you can't keep it the same. It's not going to work. You are not just kind of editing your relationship slightly, you are changing the entire foundation upon which your relationship is built and constructed. And I think people who are unicorn hunters, they worry what will happen if they do that work for good reason, right? A lot of us worry what would happen if we had to sit down with our partner and really evaluate everything about how we do things, what our assumptions are, what we want from each other, and what we want life to look like going forward. It's much easier to live in a place of we're fine. We're just going to plus another person and they'll just slot right into this space we created. No more hard conversations necessary. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It's important to remember that even if your intention is to be really good to someone, that's not the same as giving them the same amount of power and autonomy and agency in the relationship as you have. And that has to be your goal.
1: Yeah. Something that that I remember Dedeker came up with years ago of her litmus test that I really liked was to ask yourself the question, if we started dating this third person and they didn't want to be with me anymore but wanted to stay with my partner, would I be able to be okay with that? And if the answer is no, then you you might not be ready to have this type of a relationship.
0: Yeah, because... The likelihood that any one person is going to equally like two other humans for a long period of time is really low. Mm -hmm. Like attraction is fickle. Attraction is tough. People have their own interpersonal conflicts just because you and your spouse get along really well doesn't mean that a person who gets along well with you is also going to get along well with your spouse. You know, my best friend, I love her so much. We've been besties for almost a decade now. Her husband is her husband, and I love him because he's her husband, you know, and he makes her very happy, and I'm happy to That's support what their you're going to say about
2: that. <laughs> right?
0: Like, would he and I take a lot of time chilling by ourselves? Probably not. Like, would we we'd be super close friends if they broke up? Nah, probably not, right? But he's a part of that family, and so I'm there with him. If my if a condition of my friendship with my bestie was that I had to also be besties with her husband, we couldn't be besties. And that's my test for a lot of these situations is is the thing that you're asking, something would be reasonable to ask of a roommate or a bestie. Yeah, friend.
1: I love that kind of test for things.
0: Yeah, yeah, for a lot of things
3: in general. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's move
2: on to a big bombshell one, which is slut shaming. Ooh, we yeah. discussed this one, yes.
0: All right, so I'm super slutty. I am so slutty. I have sex with a lot of people. Um, You know, Reid Mahalko, who's a friend of mine, he says this thing as kind of like a half joke, but not a joke, where, like, imagine how many people you think is a lot of people for someone to have sex with. Add a zero. <laughs> That's probably <laughs> how many people I've had sex with, right? And, like, for me, it's maybe not add a zero, but it's at least multiply by five, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I'm also someone who identifies as megasexual. So a megasexual is someone who has trouble forming romantic attachment or experiencing romantic desire for a person until there is sexual connection. Uh, For me, the the experience of that internally is that I feel like I don't know you unless we've had sex. Like I don't, Mm. there's so much that I know about a person from the way that we touch and move together that if I don't know that about you, how do I know if I want to date you? I think that there is this way in non-monogamy communities where maybe it's because of respectability politics. Some folks want to say things like, oh, it's about love, not about sex. We're not like those dirty swingers, Mm -hmm. right? Which bugs the shit out of me because, Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't matter how many people you fuck. It matters how you treat the people you fuck. Totally. Totally. And when we get into this whole like calculus of like who's better because of how many people they do or don't have sex with, none of that is helpful because the number of people that is the right number of people for me to have sex with is necessarily different than the right number of people for anyone else to have sex with. Um, When we come to this space of, oh, you're fucking that person or you fucked that many people, I'm not going to come anywhere near you what we're doing is setting up a system that is bound to do us all because to straight monogamy culture, we're all sluts. Right. (laughs) Right. Right? You're not going to, you're not going to shine your version of slutty enough that they're going to feel like they can fully include you. They'll use you to help take down people who are sluttier than you, but you're never going to actually be one of them.
1: Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's wow. That's, that's a a way to put that that I haven't heard before, but that makes a lot of sense. And, And I feel like, you you started to touch on it there, but I feel like one way that I've seen this show up the most within non-monogamous communities is with sexual health and safety as kind of the the excuse yeah. or the reason.
0: Well, and I think there's still a lot of like judgment and shaming around the ways that different people make decisions about their sexual health and safety. Um, Antoinette Izzo talked about a really fantastic model called risk-aware sex rather than safe or safer sex. Uh, you know, for me, when I was growing up, it was the AIDS panic and it was all about like, if you're a good person, you use condoms every time, right? Only dangerous, dirty people don't use condoms. Um, if you get an STI, it's because you're dirty and wrong and you do bad things, right? Where well, there's all of this judgment and shaming. And I think that non-monogamy communities, to some extent, have unpacked some of that shaming. But I have friends who just really hate condoms for any number of reasons. And so they either choose to only engage in sex stuff with people who they would be okay not using condoms with. Or they have sex without barriers with more people than other people might choose to. And they get a lot of judgment and shame for that decision. Mm. Statistically speaking, if you are someone who is in a non-monogamous community, you are getting tested regularly, you have sex with people who are getting tested regularly, you have conversations about testing, you are far less likely to catch an STI than a random monogamous person out in the normal dating world. When we talk about these risk decisions, it is almost always framed as there is a right decision, which is more barriers, And there is a wrong decision, which is less barriers, no matter what the situation. And I think it comes from a well-intentioned place of wanting to keep each other safe, of wanting to avoid having blooms of stuff through communities. But I think it is also an ill-informed place. When we focus on whose decisions are right based on our standards we're bound to end up in situations where we are shaming people because they're different than we are. We don't know what factors someone considered when they made a decision about how to engage sexually with someone. The risks that we're considering when we're hooking up with people or dating people are more complex than just barrier use and testing. There are social implications. There are implications about physical bodies that happen. There are emotional implications. And I think that we have to work as a community on unpacking our ideas about how we interact with people who make risk decisions differently than we do and move to a space of like being open to understanding different methods of of assessing and making risk decisions than just the ones that we personally believe in. Yeah,
3: And I think where I start to see that getting really messy in the community is I do feel that to a certain extent, because we're still kind of dealing with this undercurrent of Shame about our sexual choices, whether that's about who we have sex with, the kind of sex we have, or what kind of risk we want to take during having sex, that I think because there's this undercurrent of shame, it becomes hard to have boundaries around your own choices. And so that can lead to situations where, you know, if I'm someone where it's like, well, I only want to have sex with someone if we can use a condom, and I'm engaging with Mm -hmm. someone who only wants to have sex with me if they cannot use a condom, one of us has to be at least has to be willing to say, like, well, then I guess we can't have sex. But I think where it starts to get or or we need to figure out something else. Right. Some other kind of sexual activity or some other way to engage that that works for both of us. But where that falls apart is that I, I feel like what happens on the personal level is like one person feels the need to convince the other right? You know, we're not comfortable just being like, okay, then I guess that means we can't have sex because we can't come to an agreement about how we can do it safely with each other, that then it turns into that either I'm going to shame you for being dirty and irresponsible for not wanting to wear a condom, or I'm going to shame you for being stuck up and paranoid and, you know, wanting to take my sexual pleasure away from me by making me wear a condom or whatever. That I th- That's where I think I start to see it crumble.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that what you touched on that I see happening there a lot is people don't want to not have <laughs> yeah, sex no, at the end of the day, right?
3: <laughs>
0: they're, they're like, we're real close. How do we <laughs> yeah. make it happen? Rather than coming to a place of like, Hey, here's the buffet of options for what we could engage in. I love hand stuff and I've got gloves. I love oral stuff. I've got dams and I've got condoms. Uh, if you want to do penetrative stuff, I've got toys and I've got condoms and this stuff. Like what kind of stuff feels good for you? And thinking about it as a buffet that we're selecting dishes from rather than like a converging on a single point negotiation. You know, the when I hook up with folks, if uh, if it was someone new to me who I didn't know very well and, you know, we were in a, especially in a play party situation, they're like, oh, I really don't like using condoms. We're like, all right, cool. Well, do you want to use a toy instead? I love hand sex. We could do hand sex stuff. Uh, do you want to do like oral stuff? Like what feels good for you? And I think of it as... I, I try as much as possible to come from a space of, okay, well, what else is possible rather than a space of how do I make this one specific act happen? Um, because, like, if they don't want to use condoms, that is up to them. That is their body. They get to make that choice. I don't want to make that choice with my body. So, like, what else is available? Yeah.
3: But... So just... Yeah, I was going to say, but then again, you know, again, that it's like we still need to step into that um, realm of being able to say that without shame, right? Yeah. You know, for you to be able to say like, okay, great. Yeah, I love hand stuff. I love toy stuff, you know, and to not, you know, I think so many people feel like while I'm risking being shamed by having to say like, okay, then I'm okay passing on penis and vagina sex if Mm. there's no
0: barriers. Yeah. Yeah. And I think... This is a thing that can be helpful to practice with friends uh, where you can kind of sit down and role play stuff out just to get used to actually saying Mm. it. Um, Most of us are so rarely in a situation where we need to pull the plug on something like that, that we're not used to it, right? I'm really used to giving like my safer sex elevator speech and talking about what barriers I want and what kind of activities I like. I'm really used to that part of it. I don't have as much real life experience with we get to that conflict and don't know what to do about it. And I think with those kinds of things that are emotionally loaded and can be very challenging, finding folks to play that out with is the best thing you can possibly do. Because the more you say it, the easier it's going to be when you say it in the moment. Um, When I was in the army, we would say, you know, uh, train like you fight, fight like you train. If you haven't trained this, it's going to be harder.
1: Yeah, we were, we were just talking about this a few episodes ago on an episode about decision making and specifically talking about the importance of rehearsing things so that when you're in that hot state, like they do in the military, you've already done this so many mm-hmm. times that you can fall back on that. Whereas we tend to not do that yep. in our normal lives where we think like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll have that safe sex talk once I'm there. And then when we're in that aroused state, we forget like, how uh, to speak or think or do anything. Like,
0: yeah, uh, I, I've been tested. I was tested for, <laughs> for the things. They, they, test, they tested me. It was All the things. Four months ago. Outside. It was yeah. months ago. I was tested.
3: <laughs> OK, so we're going to move on to the next segment, which is called. The one two way. And now I'm gonna preface this by saying that you explain the phenomenon of the one two way as being what you call uh, an intermediate problem, which I I really love the way that you clarified that. It it totally makes one hundred percent sense. And so can you explain this phenomenon and the intermediate problem
0: for our listeners? And
1: also what's what's is is this a reference that I'm missing, the one two way?
0: It's similar to, like, yeah. Princess Bride, like, 12, yeah, 12. 12. Okay,
1: got Aww. it. I thought Princess yeah. Bride, but I was like, I don't remember that line yeah. from... Okay, got it.
0: Well, and and in the kink community, they use one two away uh, a okay, lot as it. well. Uh, yeah. Uh, so one two way is whenever anyone sits you down and says, well, if you're really X, you do it exactly this way. Uh, so in polyamory, it might be, well, everyone who's actually polyamorous, of course, has a strict hierarchy with veto policy, because that's the only way to have good polyamorous relationships. Or it might be, well, you know, if you're really an informed and enlightened person who believes in feminism, you have to be non-monogamous. You can't be monogamous because it reinforces patriarchy. Um, so anyone who basically is positioning themselves as the expert of your life, uh, even though they are not in your life or an expert on it in whatsoever way, and who are telling you that they know the only way to do a thing, and it has to be the way that they so happen to do it. Uh, So I call this an intermediate problem. Uh, I used to do, or I still do to some extent, a lot of partner dancing. Uh, So uh, I taught blues and swing dancing, and what you see when you're teaching blues and swing dancing is people who are beginners know that they know nothing. So they're super receptive to feedback. They are really open to hearing what they're doing. They are like there to learn. However, once people become intermediates, they know everything. (laughs) They are going to correct you, the instructor, on the things that you're doing. And they are such experts. They have been doing this forever. They are so good at it, right? They are just phenomenal at this thing. But once they become advanced, they realize that, oh, shit, I actually don't know anything. (laughs) And they're back to this kind of beginner mind space of being open to learning and understanding. I think that there is this way that once you become a certain amount of experienced and knowledgeable about a thing, you begin to assume that you know everything about it because, you know, a lot and a lot more than most people. And it can be tempting to move at that point into a space of like expertise and like trying to instruct others and tell others how to do things Because you want to help them avoid the mistakes that you made. And because you feel like you have all of this knowledge that you can give to people. What we see, though, is that folks who have been in this community for a long time will talk about shit that we see that, like, doesn't tend to work out well. And usually we have so many caveats. Mm -hmm. Like, if you listen back to this episode (laughs) from the start, you'll notice (laughs) everything we talk about has a series of caveats. Because we know that, like this thing that I am saying as a generality is limited necessarily because it's limited by my frame of experience. You know, I'm a white person the way that I understand a lot of things about how relationship dynamics unfold is necessarily limited by the cultural conditioning that I have by being in the dominant culture, by not having to have moved through those kinds of code switching related to things like race and ethnicity. Um, We're all limited in our understanding and our perspectives and our frames of reference. And so anyone who thinks that they know what's best for everybody has to be lying. (laughs) They are not recognizing their own lack of knowledge and their own lack of understanding.
2: So you kind of alluded to this before, but how do you not fall into the trap of because you are an expert in the community and because you do do this for a living in a lot of ways, how do you fall into the trap of not asserting to your partners like, well, I do probably know the best way of doing this. Think things. that falls under
3: the don't be a douchebag <laughs> I mean, like, rule, honestly. <laughs> well,
2: exactly. Yeah, but but, think, but yeah.
0: Like for me, what I try to focus on is talking about myself, right? Like I mm-hmm. know for me in relationships what tends to work best is X Y and Z. I know that for me in relationships when these things happen, I tend to not feel great about it, right? And just taking ownership of it as my experience and my preferences. Um I know me better than anybody else. That's my job is to know me best. And I'm happy to share that knowledge and information with people that I date. If they are different than me, that is also totally cool. And we can talk about how those differences interact and intersect. I can let them know if there's stuff that just doesn't work for me without saying to them that it is wrong or bad or they're a terrible person for doing it. It's important to me to like take ownership of who I am and how I do things without putting that as the way that other people have to do it. If you want to be in a relationship with me, there are some things that are non-negotiable, and that's okay. That's that's called healthy boundaries, right? I don't mm-hmm. date people who are going to be upset that I have sex with a lot of people because I'm going to have sex with a lot of people, and like, let's just not have that fight instead. Yeah,
1: it's you know what you mentioned earlier about that. Uh, you know, people have a hard time with not having sex, basically. It's like people have a hard time making the decision to not have sex. I feel like that same thing, though, applies to everything you were just talking about, is that I feel like something that, that holds people back a lot is they hear, they hear about boundaries and they're like, oh, that sounds good in concept, or maybe they come up with some for themselves. They're like, but then in practice... I'm ending up having to say no to relationships and people kind of have it in their head that it's like, yeah. if this really worked, if this was the right way, I wouldn't ever have to do that. Right. If I found the right way, I'd never have to well, say no f- to sex and sure. I'd never have to say no to a relationship.
0: Yeah, if you could just cut yourself into the perfect shape for every person you encounter, then yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, And look, I've done that. You know, I had a really rough breakup in March of last year from someone who I spent a year and a half trying to cut myself into an acceptable shape to be in relationship with them. You know, this isn't even like a significantly past Liz problem. Um, It is hard to come to the space of I care very deeply about you. I really want this to continue. And it's just not working. And being able to just sit in that space And I think part of what helps me more with that as I continue growing in this area is looking at relationships, not as an on and off switch, but as like, what are the different elements of this relationship that we can keep? And what are the ones we can't, right? Like if someone is going to have an issue being a sexual partner of mine because I fuck a lot of people, can we have a really rad friendship instead? Like maybe we both love food and we can go and go to restaurants together or cook for each other or whatever, right? Or if someone is going to have an issue with dating me because I don't tend to have a ton of availability, like, you know, there are exceptions, but most people I date are going to see me like once a week at most. And if that's going to be an issue for someone, then like, what if we don't call it dating? Is there another kind of structure or label that changes these expectations that makes it easier for us to find a way that we can engage with each other? that isn't reliant on these particular things. And it's this buffet concept, right? I like to think of relationships as buffets. One, because buffets are delicious. (laughs) And two, because everyone knows that you don't pick up every item on a buffet, (laughs) right? There's going to be something on that buffet that you don't want. So each of us, when we come to a relationship, are essentially showing our partners the buffet of what we have available and letting them pick up a plate and take what they want, And they're showing us their buffet, and we're picking up a plate and taking what we want. And then we can compare those two plates and see, like, where does this work? Where do we actually overlap? And can we be okay with that?
1: Yeah.
2: Well, this has been amazing. We do have one more way in which to... Not do things poorly in polyamory and your polyamorous relationship. I'm like, I don't want to double negative myself here. But yes, I but that will be in our bonus episode. Um, So finally, can you tell us about Unfuck Your Polyamory that's coming up?
0: Yes. So Kevin Patterson and I uh, have decided that we wanted to do something to help folks who are figuring out non-monogamy for themselves. So we're going to do a live six week webinar called Unfuck Your Polyamory. And each week is going to have a slightly different focus in terms of what we're talking about. Uh, So you can buy them individually or as a whole package. But the idea was to just give people a really strong foundation for what non-monogamy could look like for them, helping them explore like what kind of relationship structures, what are boundaries going to look like? How can we be aware of power dynamics in our relationships and handle those with care? How can we make sure that we're setting ourselves up when it comes to jealousy and compersion? Just really creating a solid tool set so that as you move through non-monogamy, you're not fucking things up all the time. Um, Kevin is amazing. If you haven't read any of his books, you need to. Um, The For Hire series is so good. (laughs) So good such good fiction uh and you know love's not colorblind is one of the best works i think in the field of non-monogamy uh Mm. and so i was just super honored when he came to me with this idea and thought that this would be a good thing for us to do together
3: yeah excellent so tell us also where our listeners can find more of you and your work
0: yes my website is drlizpowell.com so drlizpowell.com uh i'm on twitter at sexpausepsych. I have a YouTube channel, Sex Positive Psych. Um, all of my classes, including Unfuck Your Polyamory, are available at sexpositivepsych.teachable.com. Uh, and I also have a Patreon, which I'll send you all the links cool, for. Cool,
1: yeah. So if you want to find those links, we will also have those in the show notes uh, or at least some of those, that then you can find all the others uh, in our show notes for this, which you can find at multiamory.com slash podcast. You can check for this episode 259, or you can just search for Dr. Liz on our website and you'll find this episode there. Uh, so yeah, we're going to join Dr. Liz in a moment here in our bonus episode to talk about um, things like punishing people for who they date with your partners. Also some things mm. about what's, ethical and not ethical to disclose within your polyamorous communities, things like that. So we've got a lot more cool stuff that we just didn't have time for in this episode. But if you're one of our patrons, you'll get access to that bonus episode. And so you can check that out when it comes out in a couple days. So we would love to hear from all of you. What did you think of this? Were some things, you know, what were the ones you want to angry tweet that we left out that we should have talked about, Uh, you know? (laughs)
0: Bring us your anger. We will take your anger. We'd love to to hear about it as
1: well as just which things in this episode really resonated with you or which things really blew your mind when you heard them. The best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at info at leave us a voicemail at 678-MULTI05, or you can leave us a voice message on Facebook. Multiamory is created and produced by Emily Matlack, Dedeker Winston, and me, Jace Lindgren. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Schenowark and Carson Collins. The theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on Multiamory.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty.